Pearson-Ravitz story begins with Dr. Stephanie Pearson, a passionate OBGYN at the height of her career. But when a shoulder injury struck during a precipitous delivery, her dreams were shattered, leaving her unable to practice medicine. Determined to make a difference, Dr. Pearson became an advocate for her peers, guiding them through the complex disability process. Alongside insurance expert Scott Ravitz, Dr. Pearson founded Pearson Ravitz, a company determined to approach insurance differently. Together, they set their mission to educate and empower physicians to protect their most valuable asset, their income, and the most important people in their life, their family. Today, Pearson Ravitz serves the medical community in all 50 states. At Pearson Ravitz, they understand the unique concerns of physicians. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Ravitz builds human connections before they create quotes. Life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness or injury could leave you and your family in a devastating financial situation. But with little planning and guidance, you can prepare for every possibility. Visit PearsonRavitz.com to schedule your consultation with a Pearson Ravitz advisor. How do you break bad news? How do you avoid taking adverse outcomes from that bad news home with you? And how do you continue practicing if one of those adverse outcomes turns into litigation? Stay tuned and find out. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. On today's show, we have Dr. Corinna Muller. Dr. Muller was born and raised in Alaska, and she's back there now. Having left briefly, although not so briefly, considering how long we train for, the warmer climates of Erie and central Pennsylvania, Erie is between Cleveland and Buffalo, for those who don't know, and Minneapolis in central Pennsylvania and is where she completed her MFM fellowship. So after finishing her fellowship, she practiced in a hospital setting for a little while and decided then, after learning what it was like, she opened up her own MFM practice in Anchorage, where she is one of two, correct, one of two MFM attending, one of four, one of four, in the entire state of Alaska. Holy cow. She's also a physician development coach at LadyDocs.com, LadyDocs.com, having trained at the Physician Coaching Institute and is the host of the Right Brain Rounds podcast. In addition to all that, she wrote a book called The Otava Method, O-T-T-A-V-A, a book that combines musical, business, and self-coaching principles to help people reach professional and personal goals. Dr. Muller, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. So we're going to start out talking about breaking bad news, because unfortunately in maternal fetal medicine, you tend to have a lot of that, and you've done it so often that you've kind of honed your skills at that and, and developed your own method. So tell us a little about your technique for breaking bad news so we can, can share that. So a lot of times I'm seeing patients for the first time in pregnancy after something has been identified that is not right. Either there's a maternal condition that causes, you know, major problems or, you know, the need for someone to deliver early, or there might be fetal conditions like a heart defect, brain abnormality, something that is going on, like the placenta, a short cervical length. A lot of times, like here in Alaska, 
we have a lot of our population delivering out of the hospital and with lay midwives and birth centers. And so sometimes when these things are first recognized and then they come to see me for a consultation, an ultrasound, I have to go in there knowing that the news that I'm giving this patient is going to change their, possibly their birth plan. Everything that they had planned for and hoped for is going to be almost turned upside down. Um, and sometimes, you know, especially in a state like Alaska, where we don't have a lot of the resources, a major fetal care center, have, like in Seattle or New York City, we sometimes have to transport patients out of state if there's a major cardiac defect that we can't deal with up here because we don't have the resources that are like, you know, a cardiothoracic surgeon for, you know, little babies in our state. So, so, so being then, able to identify those things. So then with regards to how you end up breaking the news, are we now approaching this from the fact that they know that something's wrong and that's why they're seeing you? Or is this particular approach coming in cold? They don't know anything. It can be either way. And so most of the time when they get to see me, they know that something has been identified and it needs further evaluations. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times... I'll go in there and I'll just be like, hey, you know, I know this is the first time that I'm meeting you. you know, nice to meet you. You know, what's your understanding of why you're here today? Getting them to let me know what it is that they think is going on or, you know, what they have learned thus far prior to seeing us. And, you know, I also have this advantage of being able to talk to them immediately after their ultrasound because I interpret the ultrasound so they don't have to wait you know, for the radiologist to call the you know, OBGYN or the ordering, you know, physician. So, you know, I can go right in there and I can show them images, like say it's a major cardiac defect. Yeah, I can show them the images and I can let them know why it's important for us to possibly transfer them out of state and, you know, what I think this, you know, working diagnosis is. Because, you know, a lot of times if there's a major cardiac defect, we need to image a, a few times before we, you know, the exact correct prenatal diagnosis. Got it. So you set the stage by having them explain what their understanding is, and then you using whatever visuals are available to you to explain. And, and then, I mean, in the course of doing that, do you, have you encountered like different ways that you have to navigate that? You know what I mean? Like, you'll get different responses and then you've got to kind of change your approach. A lot of times I'll explain to them that, you know, most the news about whatever's going on and that by the time we're done with this visit, you'll know everything that I know and you'll have lots of time to ask questions and we're here to support you and guide you through what needs to happen next as far as like delivery timing, delivery location and, and what else we can do to help you, you know, to to learn more about this. Because I can tell 10 people that say information get 10 different responses. So I just let them know, I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know all of your history or your 
religious or moral obligations that you have in life or, you know, how someone might respond to the information that I'm giving them. And so it kind of gives them opportunity to sit with that information, ask me questions. And, you know, I think giving people time to discuss, like if they have a partner with them or a friend, to discuss the information that I've provided and have the opportunity to say, I'm going to, you know, step out for a moment. And, you know, if you think that you want to talk again, you know, I can come right back. But, you know, do you need some time? And so those are things that, you know, also tell them, I recognize I'm giving you a lot of information, right? Got it. So, so so it sounds like you're giving them one by saying like, listen, I don't know what your religious background is and what your values are because we're meeting for the first time. So it kind of gives them permission to approach this from a a place where they recognize that you're not judging them. Like they can ask any sort of question, you know, it, it, free of judgment, right? Like you're giving them that you're letting them know that, listen, however you react to this and respond to this is the right way. Let me know what questions you have from whatever angle you're choosing to approach this. And then you let them digest it for a while. Like maybe you'll go to the patient in another room, you know, give them some time to digest and then come back in or even give them the ability to, because if they might want to be, they might want to just get the heck out of there. Like, I don't want to be in here right now. I just need to leave. And then you let them do that. But you kind of give them this ability to sit with it for a little while and digest it if they want. Exactly. And, you know, the other thing that is important is follow up after they've left this, you know, just saying, hey, you know, you can reach out to us if you have any other questions that come up before your next visit or, you know, can we give you a call to to make sure that you, know, you have all of your questions answered and when would be a great time to call you? You know, do you need to go home and talk to some family members, trusted friends, clergy? You know, a lot of times people will, you know, say that they need to discuss, you know, some of the things with their loved ones or, you know, people that they would be receptive to having a conversation if, if it's me. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like that where you'll like, we're going to call you tomorrow, right? Like into, yes, you're going to be seen by this other doctor and this other place. You might need to see a cardiothoracic, a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon in this unknown period of time in this unknown place. Like there's a lot of unknowns, but what you're doing is you're anchoring them with this phone call tomorrow. So they feel like they're being cast adrift with all these unknowns. And yet that I feel like that's a good anchor. I'll call you tomorrow. You know, we're going to keep, I'm with you here. I'm with you with this news. Yeah. I think that's really powerful. Even in um, some cases where like maybe patient will come in and has a fetal death and then, you know, I'm the first one to talk to them. Often tell that in their time of grief that I've seen this in my medical opinion, it might be callous or uncaring, but that if they want to have the best information about what happened in this pregnancy to further move on and, and plan for the future, like 
I know they're not planning for the future. I know they're not thinking about that, their next baby at, during a visit, but let them know I've seen so many people that have decided not to do any testing or kind of explore a pathway, you know, to figure out what exactly happened in their grief that when it comes time for the next pregnancy, we may not have an answer as to what happened. And so how to prevent these things from happening again. You know, I kind of plant the seed for them to say, you know, these are some options for testing that are available. And I know it doesn't sound like a great idea right at this moment, but having done this before, some people are really happy that they did because it helps on next pregnancy and might even lead to an intervention may prevent this from happening. You know, I think kind of put it in a medical perspective, prefacing statement saying, I know this sounds really weird right now. Or, you know, you might just say, no, I just don't, I just want to get out of here. I just don't want to do anything that you might wish that you would have done something like that and have regrets. Yeah. We so, don't want to end up in this situation again. And so there might be something that we can find out to decrease the risk of happening of having it happen. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That sounds like a, a hard conversation because they just, they're not, yeah, they're not, they're not in that mental place and yet they need to make these decisions. Sure. Yeah. You deal with a lot of heavy stuff, like what we were just talking about, right? On a previous episode, we talked with a, a physician and we, we made this distinction between compassion and, and empathy. Like compassion is you're putting yourself in their shoes. I'm sorry. Empathy is you're putting yourself in their shoes and compassion is you're just, you know, you're kind of feeling for this person doing whatever you can to help them and make them feel better or just help them through a difficult situation. But I would imagine it's hard to like untangle, untether those two things from each other and not somehow take it home. So when you're dealing with, you know, just these outcomes, how do you prevent it from being so emotionally taxing? I often have to remind myself that it's a high-risk field because high risk and bad things happen. And a lot of times I do turn to music my, myself as far as, you know, being a flutist. I did get a music degree in my undergrad studies, and I feel like that's a great way to escape. And then just taking some quiet time for myself before I had to maybe try to leave a lot of those feelings at work, although it's easy to do. And, and, you know, I do feel like I take a lot of it. And I didn't realize going into this field, you know, as a young intern, because I love ultrasound, that would also be faced with a lot of tough situations. But, you know, helping those patients through it, you know, I just saw a patient the other day having subsequent pregnancies after a really horrible first pregnancy with a fetal demise and kind of getting that couple through that pregnancy where all those things happened. She just really thanked me for like not giving up hope that she would have normal pregnancy in the future or, you know, could work towards that and being supportive during that, you know, tough pregnancy that she had. The one hang thing on to those that brighter I also moments. say, you know, there is a reason 
why I do this. And it's to be a support only with like the knowledge that I have about high-risk pregnancies, but also being empathetic and providing some hope for people when they think that. And I would imagine it helps to kind of distance yourself from the outcome because it's not like the outcome is your fault. You're doing these, you're taking care of these high-risk patients, these high-risk pregnancies. And so you're inevitably going to have complications and adverse outcomes. It's just, you know, the field you've chosen to be in, you've chosen to be in a field that's full of adverse outcomes and recognizing that it's out of, you know, you do it, whatever you can that's in your control, but there's only so much that's in your control, but you're still helping the patient as much as you could. Yes. And I think earlier in my career, it, it was very tough to realize that when bad things happened, bad things just happen. It doesn't mean that it's anyone's. And I think in our training, you know, we are really, we really try to prevent what nature's doing on its and we can't always prevent those things and to think that we can't i mean that would be superhuman <laughs> and you know a lot of us medicine are perfectionists and we can't expect perfection situations where we don't have a perfect patient specimen exactly yeah so the hunt for perfection i, mean, I don't know why anyone tends to do that or why we expect that of ourselves when nothing will ever be perfect. Because that's how we're trained, right? Like we're trained to fix it. And if you didn't fix it, then what, you know, what did you do, right? But the reality is like, yeah, we can mitigate risk. We can't eliminate risk. Like same as anything else. You know, let's say that, so you give a lot of bad news, but sometimes that bad news can come back to haunt you. Like in terms of litigation, in OB, in OBGYN, you all are at high risk, and I would imagine MFM, you're at even higher risk. Like you've you've chosen a specialty where like litigation is inevitable, inevitable. And if you don't, as you know, as if you're not taking this stuff home enough, you know, you you find a plaintiff's attorney who twists the knife. Tell us about your experience with that. You know, I think that the biggest thing is what do you do with patients want to take a different course than what is recommended. Frequently, you know, you might have people that will not follow testing requirements for the well-being and surveillance of the baby, a recommendation for early delivery to prevent silver. Documentation is key in those situations and to really counsel that patient about what the risks are if they are not going to follow a recommended, you know, delivery plan or, you know, surveillance plan. So, you know, sometimes you can only document what, what's been said and done and learned in my documentation style that I often talk to people about fetal movement, any type of labor signs or symptoms, and that they should always call or go to the hospital if XYZ is, is happening. And if I have a tough conversation, someone say they're diabetic and they don't want to take their insulin and they're being non-compliant and, you know, we haven't seen them in months and they, you know, come to see us, 
you know, we do have talks about you know, the adverse outcomes that can happen with noncompliance. And well, you can always you can you um, can document, you can document, and you can document. Yes, it does. It's not going to prevent that adverse outcome from from happening, and then it's not going to prevent a plaintiff's attorney from you know from looking to see what they can get out of the situation. You know, I know they say it's in the guise of advocating for the patients, but we all know it's business and business is business, right? So, so you know, you can only do so much to mitigate your own risk through documentation, but when you do end up with getting served, right? How do you, you know, you get served and then you, you turn around and you got a patient in the other exam room that you've got to look after, right? And you might have to break bad news to the, like, how do you keep practicing? You know, I think if you look at it from an emotional standpoint and you read the plaintiff's attorney's complaint. Oh, the complaint. Yeah. They're going to just name everything they can possibly do. And it's almost like humiliating when you read the complaint because they just, everything that you could possibly have done wrong and probably didn't, they're going to name. Yeah. So you read those complaints and you really, yeah, you end up taking it personally. Yeah, you will not feel good about yourself if anyone out here has ever been named in a lawsuit. You know, reading those things, I mean, you just wonder, wow, am I really a physician? I'm, I must be an imposter. And every case comes next after having a fractured relationship with a patient because of litigation and just, you know, wonder how those things can happen. And one of the cases that I was named in, that patient saw me for one pregnancy and then came back to me for another pregnancy after I was being sued <laughs> for the pregnancy that she was concerned, I mean, that her a lawyer was suing me for. I mean, can so, is that the gall? The gall! Gall! I mean, you're in, there in Alaska, so it's not like they can go many other places, but still, that is, oh. Yeah, and this happened before I moved back to Alaska. Oh, so that wasn't even Alaska. Yeah. Got it, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's not something that you can say in court either. Yeah, you know, I must be such a horrible doctor that this patient is suing me and other physicians. I mean, there's probably about 10 people named, um, but... I'm so horrible that you come back to me in the next pregnancy. So how did you see? I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd have enough trouble, you know, once I'm if if I'm served to continue seeing patients for the rest of that day and the rest of that week. The rest, right? It's hard enough. But how do you yes. treat that patient that you know is suing you? It's very interesting. You you just have to talk with your risk management people, and that's for the best. Yeah, I'm sure it's a good look though, like in court. Right. Like you want to be the in, in, in a deposition, you want to be, you know, appear to be like a, a professional, formidable physician. And if that patient then went back to you again, that says something about their trust in you and their care. So that I think is damning for them in their case that they went back to you because they trusted you. You can't, you can't even mention that's nuts. That is just nuts. That is just nuts. But yes, it does really affect your psyche, and I, I think it can lead to extra testing, extra imaging, 
doing more frivolous evaluations, spreading the risk around as well, you know, in, in future patient endeavors. And, you know, it can make you question why you went into medicine. Because, you know, I do know, you know, after kind of going through a lawsuit myself, about 83% of OBGYNs will be sued at least once. I mean, it's very likely. And that litigation is a business. And malpractice insurance is a business. And we are covered for cases where something happens. It might not be the fault of one physician or a group of physicians. It might just be a bad outcome. And it doesn't define you as a physician. You know, when you look at doing procedures, surgeries, you know, like if I do amniocentesis or a cerclage or C-sections or whatever, you practice long enough, you're going to have some complications. It's statistically one of those things going to happen. It doesn't mean that someone told was negligent or purposefully meant to hurt a patient or their baby or... But it doesn't matter. The optics matter. The outcomes matter and the optics matter because, you know, you're gonna, you, can, you can win or lose a case based on optics. And if, you, if a doctor takes awful care of a patient, right, if, this, if they have an OB that like completely negle- like neglects testing, and, but they deliver and everything's fine, there's no lawsuit there. You do everything by the book and there's an adverse outcome, there's your lawsuit. So, you know, the care is, you know, it's the outcome that ultimately matters. And if you practice enough medicine, you're going to have adverse outcomes. And yes, it's a business. It's a business. The, the, The lawyers say that they're doing it in order to protect the patients, but ultimately it's a business and they see it as this is what we should know. Having gone into medicine, it's the cost of doing business. It's ridiculous, but you know, from their perspective, that's the reality, and we're the ones that are, you know, that are are stuck dealing with it and having to live through the the guilt and the grief and the imposter syndrome and the feelings of incompetence and questioning whether we should continue in medicine, and it definitely contributes to the rate of physician suicide. So, all of that just and you could and you could have been practicing excellent medicine. And so I I think that's a great message to put out to people is that, you know, you're still a good doctor, even if you get sued. And, you know, it it will change the way that you practice. Definitely will. And it also might change your mindset on what it means to be sued, too, because I think if you catastrophize and think, oh, you know, the worst is going to happen. I'm going to lose my license. I'm going to be able to see patients anymore. I won't have any way to have a livelihood. Everything's going to be taken away from me. I mean, that going to happen unless something majorly wrong and egregious. Even if plaintiff's lawyer writes something up about you that makes you feel like you're the most horrible doctor. You know, that's they get their audience and settlements for patients. So 
separating feelings, you know, from bad patient outcomes and taking home emotional, you know, horribly, you know, horrible cases, you know, trying not to take it that home emotionally. You also have to balance with not taking home emotionally what is going on in a courtroom or, you know, with the law as it applies to physicians in the United States. And just, you know, say, this is why I have malpractice insurance. The statistics show us that most people in high-risk um, specialties are going to be sued. It's just a matter of when. Yeah. And the sooner we learn about that and deal with it and know that it's a reality in our field as young, you know, practitioners will be prepared for and also knowing who we can reach out to, to you know luckily the one lawsuit I was in had a wonderful attorney always was there to speak with me if I had questions you know I think that dynamic too really helps because in their experience they know what these things might result and can give you some peace of mind, you know, you're, you're the most horrible doctor in the world, but, you know, see. <laughs> well, if our, if our listeners want to find your podcast, they want to uh, look into coaching with you, where can people find you? www.ladydogs.com and the Right Brain Rounds podcast. I do do a lot of discussion about creative ways to deal with physician burnout. And I talk with a lot of other physician coaches. So it's pretty nice to be able to see, you know, what physicians do to take their mind off of their sometimes daunting field of medicine and, you know, help us like kind of get away from that and, you know, just take a break and relax for ourselves. Fantastic. Well, and the book is The Ottava Method, O-T-T-A-V-A Method and LadyDocs.com, D-O-X. Dr. Corinna Muller, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. And now a final word from our sponsor. At Pearson Rabbits, they understand that life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness, injury, or catastrophic event could put you and your family in a devastating financial situation. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Ravitz builds human connections before they create quotes. Visit PearsonRavitz.com today and embark on a journey of safeguarding your future. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please, share it, or like it, or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.